Open your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter number 12. The book of Revelation, chapter number 12. I've been preaching a series of messages called Christmas Revealed. And first time, first Sunday, I preached on the Christmas word that's revealed. And that is in chapter 1 of the book of the Revelation. And then I talked about the Christian and his worthiness and worship. Christmas regarding his worthiness and worship. And that's in Revelation chapter 4. Well, today I'm going to talk to you about something that um, probably I don't know that anyone's ever preached this on Sunday morning or not. But I'm going to preach to you today about Christmas and the war. Christmas and the war. Let's bow our heads and pray before I read our text today. Father, take the word of God that I'm about to read and penetrate the hearts of each one of us today. Help us to get something that you mean for us to get. Help us to get all you mean for us to have today. May we be faithful in preaching and may we be faithful in hearing. And God, I pray that you will help our church today to find something around another tree, not their traditional tree, but around the cross of Calvary. And let me preach in power, and God, you'll have the glory and honor for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 12, verse number 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. Now that's not who you think it is. Let's keep reading. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold a great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child. This is who you believe it is. Who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled to the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days with 360 days in their calendar. That's three and a half years. So let's bow our heads today uh, one more time as we pray and ask God to just touch this place. God, we've read your word now. And God, I pray we've heard your word. And now God help us to expound it in such a way we can't miss it. In Jesus' name, amen. For at least 6,000 or more years now, there has been a universal and a cosmic and a spiritual conflict of the ages. It has... uh, gone on and on and on and on, and I'll tell you when it began in just a few moments. When our men, including my dad and some of you, maybe many of you who 
went to Korea and fought there in that war. But it was never declared a war. They declared it a conflict. The reason it was a conflict because it went on and on and on. The only difference was it didn't really have an ending. But the conflict we're reading about today, we're going to come out victorious. In Korea, we didn't come out victorious. We had the heart for it. We had the men for it. We just didn't have the politics for it. But today, all that stuff can be overruled because Jesus is going to rule and reign and be victorious in the end. I'll just let you in on a little secret. I've read the whole book, and we win. Amen? We win. You say, what? do you mean by the word conflict of the ages? Well, conflict means to collide, to contend, to do battle with. It really means a prolonged struggle. That's what we're seeing here, a prolonged struggle. This is what happens between God and the devil, a prolonged struggle. This is what happens between good and evil. This is what happens between righteous and unrighteousness. This is what happens between holy and unholy. This is what happens between godly and ungodly. There is a struggle, a continual conflict going on. It's going on this morning. It's going on in your life. It's going on in our church. It's going on in our city. It's going on in our state. It's going on in our world. A continual conflict. John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus said to his disciples, For the prince of this world cometh, listen to this, I like this, For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. He said, There's nothing in me like him, and there's nothing in him like me. Hallelujah. And so there's a clash, there's a conflict. A prolonged struggle going on in this world today. Chapter 12 of Revelation gives us kind of a, um, an overall history of this conflict. Y'all stay with me now because, first of all, I want you to see the Christmas woman. The Christmas woman. There's the suffering of this Christmas woman. Notice you see a symbol of a woman. You say, well, and then verse number one, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and, and, under her, uh, and the moon under her feet and, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars and she being with child cried travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. In other words, she is hurting. She is being pained like a mother giving birth to a child. Who is this woman? Who is she? Well, there's four symbolic names for women in the book of the Revelation. The first one we find is Jezebel, chapter 2, verse number 20 of Revelation. And she is symbolic of spiritual fornication and uh, immorality and bad doctrine or heresy. And then the second one we find is here, and we'll talk about that. But the third one is in chapter 17, verse number 1. And she is called, and, and for our children being here today, I'm going to use another word uh, because I don't, because they hear it used all the bad ways. There's the great harlot. She's the next one, and that is representative of false religion, uh, not just here, but globally. 
Not just false religion, but false prophets globally. That's what that represents. Revelation chapter 17 and 18 is all religions crammed together in a socialist, secular, humanist society. That's what it is. Now, fourth one is, or third one is the Lamb's wife. She's the church. She's found in Revelation 19, verse 7. I'm glad for one time I get to be a woman, right? It's okay. <laughs> this is all right because we're the bride of Jesus Christ. We're the bride. The church is the bride. Now, that don't mean you're a female, you men, so don't lose your masculinity right quick. But it just simply means that we are the church, and that is called the Lamb's Wife. You see, in most marriages, who gets most of the attention? The, the, the bride, right? The bride. But in this one, the one that's going to get most of the attention is the groom. And so that's three. Now, we see this one that's mentioned for us today, and it is the woman in verse 1 that is clothed with the sun. You say, who is that? That woman, listen to me, is Israel. That woman is Israel. Now, some try to identify this woman as the Virgin Mary. But verse number 6, verse number 6 clearly shows that this is a national woman, not an individual woman we're talking about here. Some try to make this woman the church. But folks, the church is called the bride of Christ. The church didn't bring Christ in. Christ built the church in. So that can't be it, right? That don't work. You can't say that the, that's the church. But here the woman gives birth to the child, which cannot be the church since the child gave birth to the church, nor the church to the child. So look at the word he uses, a wonder. That particular wonder is the word sign or signified is a, 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 a good way to use that word. It's the signified Israel. It signified Israel, it's, uh, uh, we are helped to see that, and it's illustrated by Joseph. If you want to know how I know that's Israel, you search your Bible everywhere, and listen, there is nothing in the book of the Revelation that somewhere in the Bible God doesn't describe and explain it for us. There's nothing about Revelation you can't understand if you'll read the whole book. By the way, that's the last chapter. Amen. And if you'll get it together, by the time you get to the revelation, you understand what he's talking about. So when you want to know who he's talking about here, you go back to Genesis chapter 37, verse 9 and 11, and Joseph has a dream and describes this exactly. And so he brings it out to let us know that this is the sign. It is a, it's the sign that represents the family of Israel, the nation of the covenant. Hosea presents her as an adulterous woman because of her backsliding. But God said, even though she is, and even though she's backslid, and even though she'll be punished for it, I will not give her up. He hadn't given her up yet. And so listen, there's the suffering of this woman. Look, the child, of course, here is the Lord Jesus. But, but the, the travail and birth pangs come long before the nine months in Mary's womb. Okay? You say, where did it start? It started in Eden. Started in Eden. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, listen to what it says. And I will put enmity. You know what that word means? Conflict. I'll put a struggle, a continual struggle. Look what he said. Between thee and the woman. Israel, the woman. And between thy seed and her seed. Her seed, messianic. His seed, a mess. Amen? That's the way he describes it. So in that passage it said, it, meaning Jesus, shall bruise thy head. Thank God for that. And thou shalt bruise his heel. On Calvary, they bruised his heel. But when he comes the second time, he'll put his foot down upon the head of the evil one. And Jesus will prevail. That's what this passage is teaching us today. So uh, uh, Micah chapter 5, God just goes on to tell us that the birth of his son will be a victorious ruler. He not only says he's going to be born in a little town of Bethlehem that nobody in the world knew where it was except those who lived in Bethlehem. A little bitty shepherd town that raised sheep for the slaughter. A little bitty place, now there's multitudes goes there on Christmas, a multitude of Catholics that go there in what they call Manger Square, and they kiss the ground and kiss the wall. Thank God, I'm glad we come and kiss Jesus with our faith. Amen. And so, uh, he, even in Micah, he's still talking. He's still talking about this woman. Even in Micah, saying it's going to be a ruler, that the son that this woman bears is going to be victorious. It's clear that the child here the, is called a holy child, and it's clear that it was a little Jewish boy, a little Jewish baby. Now, the Ku Klux Klan don't know that. The white supremacists don't know that. Um, the, uh, the, the, the black... Uh, uh, Marxists don't know that. Uh, many people in this world don't know that. The Sophists don't know that. Ignorant people don't know that. But I'm telling you, the holy child was a Jewish boy. I got news for you. He wasn't European. He didn't look like you. He was brown. You say, what, what are we going to look like in heaven? Whatever Jesus wants us to look like. But I do know we're going to look like him. I know that. Ever, whatever Jesus looked like in his resurrected body, that's what we're going to look like. Because Jesus said he'll make us like that. Now, right now, uh, we, we can't have that privilege. But you say, well, I, 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 can't, I can't accept that. I can't accept the fact that, that Jesus, who come to save the world, was a Jewish little boy. Well, read John chapter 4, verse 9, and John chapter 4, verse 22. In, in John chapter 4, 9, it says, How is it that thou being a Jew, talking about Jesus, and then listen to what he says in verse 22, For salvation is of the Jews. It is, right here. So Hebrews 7, 14 says, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which the tribe of Moses spake concerning priesthood. And listen, folks, he wasn't just a priesthood like the head in Moses. Today, he's a different order. He's the order of Melchizedek. That means he had no beginning. He'll have no ending. And he, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He is our high priest. And you are a priest. You can go straight to him. 
And you can come boldly before the throne that you might find grace to help in time of need. And all of us needs grace to help in time of need. And so here, here he's describing this boy. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Christ Jesus, born of the seed of David according to the flesh. In his human flesh, he was not an Anglo child. He was not a black child. He was a Jewish child. And if you'll read Romans chapter 9, verse 4 and 5, the Jews got all the privileges you could hope for. They got the promises they got the covenants. They got everything. They got the law. They got it all. And yet still rejected, many did, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.16 2, says, For verily he took not on him the nature of the angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Genesis, Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds. In other words, there's not two ways, three ways, four ways to get to heaven. There's one way to get to heaven, and there's one seed that got us there. That's what he said. He saith not, and to seeds of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. That's the seed we come from. Once we're born again. Until you're born again, your father's the devil. That's the seed you come from. Because your father was a sinner, and his father was a sinner, and his father was a sinner, and his father was a sinner, and everybody was a sinner all the way back to Adam. You don't have to go to Ancestry.com to figure that out. So we know that. We're sinners. But thank God we have a Savior. Because that's why Jesus said in John 8, 56, your father, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And folks, the day I saw him, the day I really saw him, I'm going to tell you I rejoiced and was glad when I really saw him. A Abraham's in paradise. Abraham hadn't been taken to heaven yet. He, he is in, like Luke 16, a great guff is fixed between him and hell. And he's down there being comforted and waiting for the day that Jesus delivers him to another place called heaven. And Ephesians tells us that he went right down there and got his crowd, the believers in Jesus Christ, and escorted them right up through the sky to heaven. That's the way it worked. So... We see the first thing about old, the old devil. Um, we see the Christmas woman. And we see him secondly as the dragon here. You see, he, there's a war of seeds going on. It's illustrated by Joseph's dream. It is unabated pain because the devil hates God. But he describes in verse 3 and 4 the fact that Satan is the dragon. He's named powerful. He's called the great red dragon. Folks, listen, when you're dealing with the devil, you're dealing with something bigger and stronger than you. Now you get this, the second most powerful, the second most smart person in whatever the heavens hold is the devil right behind God. You read Ezekiel and Isaiah, and it'll tell you. He was that wise. You think you can outsmart him? Nope. You can beat him, but you can't outsmart him. 
He said, there, there, there's, there's a way that we've been beating him a long time. I'm going to show you that before we quit. But I want you to notice something. He is, that word great means powerful and strong. The word red means he was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44 says he was. And the word dragon means he was very vicious in what he does. So the devil, Satan, has many names, but every name that Satan has in the Bible is always powerful and always evil. Y'all, got, y'all getting this? Revelation 9-11 calls him Apollyon. Apollyon means the destroyer. I mean, he's called Apollyon, the destroyer. Luke chapter 11, verse 21, Jesus called him a strong-armed man. He said, you can't do anything with that strong-armed man unless you get somebody in you that's stronger than him. Amen. And so, the greatest truth we can ever learn, that the devil is powerful and we are no match for him. And he has overpowered the majority of this world. And at one time, he overpowered my life. And at one time, he overpowered your life. And there may be somebody sitting in this building this morning on this Christmas day that he has you under his thumb and you don't even recognize it. Read Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 2 and it'll tell you that every one of us was under the power of the devil. We did his bidding. We went where he wanted us to go. We operated on his merry-go-round. And so he says he, he's named powerful, but secondly, he is a national power. Look in verse number three. And by the way, the word dragon was an ancient medieval thought that embodied all evil. In fact, they dreaded it. That was a word. When they heard that word, it was a dread. And that, uh, that is why that, um, they worship him in China. It is their imperial emblem. And so you say, why? Because verse 3 says he is a national power. You say, explain that, okay? Turn over to chapter 17. That's not too far in the book of Revelation. Don't think you can ride that far? Okay, let's ride over there. And I, want you, I, I, could, I could tell you a whole lot, but I'm just going to show you a little bit. Look at verse number 11. And the beast that was and is not, even as the eighth and his other seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. That means the Antichrist. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength to the beast. And these shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and they that are with him are called chosen and faithful. You see, I'm telling you, there is no way to explain what's going on in our world today except Satan has national power. He rules the nations. He's in the hearts of the rulers. They do what he says do. They act the way he says act. That's why they act so unreasonable. It's not that they're any dumber than we are. Well, some of them are, but... uh, uh, they're just under the power of Satan. So don't get mad at your preacher when he preaches on something national that's evil and wrong and stinking because it comes from the evil one, the devil. And when you go to the polls to vote, don't you vote for the devil. Vote something even somewhere close to what's good. 
There has been six world powers. Listen to me. There's been six world powers that have overran Israel. Six world powers. You can go back in your history and look it up. it's, It's clearly recorded. But there's one yet to come. One yet to come. The key to this is that the Satan, the dragon, has national power, and he uses the national power to fight against God. The conflict of the ages has been fought, yes, between you and the devil. Yes, it's been fought personal. There's no doubt about that. But it's also been fought nationally and politically. Just, you can't get around it. You can't get around it. You see, that most of this world's against God. Do you see what the US, United States of America did this past week toward Israel? They sat still while they said that they, that bunch of uh, renegades over there, the renegade cutthroats, Palestinians, they said they ought to have about 95% of Israel. And Israel hadn't gotten much anyway. And the United States of America sat there and didn't even vote. And our vote makes the difference. So you tell me what, who, who caused that. When you've got a woman that God says he won't give up, and you've got a country that says he won't support her, that don't put us in a very good shape. Just saying. Just saying. He uses national power. In fact, we don't even know anything about the devil except through national power. You learn it in Isaiah 14, 12, Ezekiel 28, 12. One was the king of Tyrus, another was the Babylonian king. That's how we learn what we know about the devil was through two, through, uh, two kings who the devil operated in their life. Isn't that amazing? But look at number three. There's the numerous principalities that's involved. His demons, look. His tail pulled down one-third of all the angels. They followed him. Now, they're his henchmen to conflict and control. They're not only possessing and destroying poor souls and leading and misleading a hell-bound world, but Jesus illustrates what they can really do in that man in Luke chapter number 8. And they can absolutely destroy lives. Demons get to working in your head and in your mind and your body. Oh, and you, and you can't, you don't have the power against them without Jesus. Don't sit there and say you're tough, that you can handle the devil. No one else has been able to. Don't think you can. You can ride a Harley and have hell's angels written on the back of your coat. You can have big muscles. You can be all tough if you want to, but you can't handle the devil. They can't handle him in our schools. We can't, we can, you can, you can talk about the devil in school, but you can't talk about Jesus. You can have Halloween in school, but you can't have Christmas. Not, not real Christmas, just that mystery, mystery one. The mythology, the mythology surrounding it. They celebrate Halloween, but they don't celebrate Easter. They talk about death, but they never talk about the resurrection. So he has his way in a lot of places. And we come today to talk about Jesus as victorious, not Satan as the power. But look at his nasty purpose in verse number four. His purpose was to devour the Christ child and prevent him from becoming a savior. Where'd that start? 
Cain slew Abel. Why? The Bible tells us in 1 John, it was an attempt of the devil to destroy the seed. Y'all got it? Now look, the second thing. He corrupted the world, but he, he, he just couldn't get all of them. He missed Noah and his three boys. And so he was trying to destroy the seed, but God spared him eight. Okay? Third thing in 2 Kings chapter 19, that's about 600 to 700 B.C. In, the, in that particular area, that was Assyria comes, and they try to destroy the seed. But they didn't destroy the seed. And they tried to devour Christ and exterminate Israel. Pharaoh then tried by killing them off of Egypt in Moses' day. He said, we'll get rid of all those males. There won't be a seed. And so he destroyed or tried to destroy all the males, but God kept him one. Now he kept him one, put him in the White House. Amen. And then there was a little girl named Esther. And there was a wicked man named Haman. And he tried to exterminate the seed. He said he got together with all, all of his evil demon-possessed friends. And they all got together. And they go to the king. And they say, Ahasuerus, we need to make sure that we don't have a Jew left in this country. We need to exterminate them all. And the king said, well, you're pretty wise. I'll go with that. And so the, the decree was sent out to kill all the Jews. And you remember, her uncle comes to her, said, you've got to do something for such a time as this is why you're here. And sure enough, she goes before the king and she reveals that she's a Jew. And when it's all said and done, the gallows that was built to hang her uncle on hung Haman on. And I'm telling you something, folks, you don't beat God. Finally, Herod tried to eliminate Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 and 18. Those kings come. Wasn't three of them. We just got three gifts, but we don't know how many it was. In fact, it's very doubtful it was three. It was probably maybe hundreds. Could have been 200. Could have been 100. You see, it never would have got attention of, of, the, of Herod had it not been just but one or two or three. And so the the wise men who Daniel had taught about the seed, that's how they learned that. And folks, that's that's, that's what's called missions. Wherever God puts us, we're to plant. Right? So he does that. And he, he tried, when the wise men was wiser than he because of the God that led them a different way, He got all angry and said, kill all the babies under two years old. Two years old and under. So then God spoke and saved the seed and took Jesus into Egypt. And then God spoke to Joseph again, said, now you can bring him back home. But when he gets back home, he sees there's still another Herodian on the throne. So he goes up to the little city of Nazareth. And that's where he fulfills the Nazir prophecy in the Old Testament. And so God saved his seed. Luke chapter 4, verse 28 and 29, he tried to do it again. And Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, the devil took him up in the wilderness and said, hey, hey, 
hey, jump off of this. God will have to, he was wanting to destroy the Messiah. He couldn't stop the seed. He couldn't stop it. He tried every way to stop it, but he couldn't stop the seed. Every nation he rose up, tried to stop it. From the Persians and all, he couldn't, they couldn't stop the seed. And so finally, Jesus goes up with the devil and the devil gave Jesus his best shots. And none of them got through. And finally in the Garden of Gethsemane, all through Jesus' life. By the way, don't forget, Jesus didn't just get tempted in, the, in that 140 days. The Bible said he left him for a season. That means he shows back up again. Now, I will tell you, you say, boy, I got the devil today. Yeah, but he'll be back tomorrow. And he'll be back with a little bit more ammunition tomorrow, a little bit more subtlety tomorrow, but he'll be back. And then here we find the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, well... This is my chance. I better get him now. I better get him now. And I am absolutely convinced with all of my heart that when he prayed and his sweat became as great drops of blood, that the devil was trying to kill Jesus. Because in Hebrews chapter 2, he, he descri- uh, Hebrews chapter 5, he describes the fact that there he was weeping. He was weeping. And then the Bible says the angels came and ministered to him. The angels said, let me kick you demons out of here. Who leave that Savior alone. They couldn't beat Michael the archangel. You see, the devils, the demons are powerful, but remember it's two to one. And the Bible says he sends ministering spirits to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. Now, he, he don't send angels to save you because angels can't get saved and don't even know what it is. He just gets them to minister to you. He gets them to knock stuff out of the way, put stuff in place. He just makes providence all work. Y'all, 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 y'all getting this at all? And finally, he said, I'll get him now. I'll hang him on the cross. And so he stirred up his own religious crowd against him and they took him and throwed him in Pilate's hands. And he didn't want to, he, he washed his hands to do what you want to do. But you can't get the blood of Jesus off your hands. Amen. And so he, they take him and they hang him on an old rugged cross. And the devil thought he'd won, but all he'd done was nail his coffin shut. Because when you read John chapter 12, verse 31 and 33, Jesus makes it very clear that what happened there beat the devil and drew us to him. Mm, Bless the Lord. And Hebrews 2, 14 says that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. And in Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, the Bible says there that he forgave us, and he ripped the slimy grip of every one of the demons and powers of hell off of us, forgave us, set us free, saved us, and translated us in the kingdom of his dear son. In Colossians 1 and 2, he tells us those things. You can go look. I had not got time to tell you. So we see the devil's fall. The devil's ferocious. In a few minutes, we'll see the fleeing. But now I want you to see the son who's Jesus, verse 5 and 6. I want you to see the son of Christmas. Son of Christmas. It's not the deers of Christmas. Not the 
trees of Christmas, not the ornaments of Christmas, not the gifts of Christmas. It's the son of Christmas. First of all, the Bible tells us he was birthed the rule. Brought forth a man who was the rule, verse 5. Y'all saying that? That means he's our judge. Why do you think he needs a rod? We're his sheep. We're stubborn, though. He has to knock the daylights out of us sometimes, get our attention. He takes his rod and pops us on the head. He takes his staff and pulls us to him. Y'all got this? I could tell you some more things I want, but number two, not only was he birthed the rule, but he was ascended to reign. He was born, but he lived 33 years, a perfect sinless life. They could find no fault in him. And then they crucified him, hung him on a cross, put him in a tomb. He just walked through the walls of that tomb on the third day and showed himself alive, we know, to over 500 people. That'll get anybody convicted. And then, as his disciples watched him, he ascended up into the clouds. And they said, why are you standing here watching that? He's going to come back just like he went. That gives me a little hope. He ascended. He ascended to reign. Why? Because he is Lord of all. Up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph or his foes. But thirdly, he was hated of race in verse 6. He hated Israel, still does, the world still does. You know why? Because our Lord came from that race. Yeah. They've been the scorn of this world, and they will be until Jesus settles it all. The United States better change some policies. If we hold off just a piece of judgment for a while. He was virgin born, child delivered, child dominating. That's what he says right here. When Satan saw the resurrection, he didn't go buy an Easter bonnet and celebrate, but he got a war bonnet, put it on, and said, now I got to go after the church. He's been after the church, but he hadn't forgotten Israel. He still hates Israel more than he hates even the church because the church is just grafted in. But look at the last thing and I'll be done. Look at the serpent as the devil. First of all, he was defended by Michael in verse number seven. Michael is the chief or archangel. Now, if Michael could defend against the devil, but he could not match wits with him. We understand. He couldn't argue with him. Jude verse 9 tells us that. Not even Michael could argue with him. The devil is second to God in wisdom, Ezekiel 28, 12. I said that a moment ago. And he is too intelligent for you to try to whip without getting born again. Hebrews 1, 14 tells us that these angels are sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. He just gets everything out of the way so we can come to Jesus. People say, well, if they're not the elect, they can't get to God. I'm telling you, anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. 
You say, how can they do it? The ministering angels comes, the Bible says. Listen, listen clearly to what it says. They sent forth the minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. In other words, today, if you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm lost, but I, I, the devil's holding me back. All you've got to say is, God, get his slimy hands off of me. I want to come to you, and you get born again today. You can get saved. And then look how he was dismissed by God. I'm going to run through this quick. There's five falls of Satan, five fatal blows to him. First of all, Revelation 12, verse 3 and 4, he falls from his habitation. You see, he, he, can't, he, he can't dwell in heaven anymore. And then he fell by condemnation. When Jesus died on the cross, he took another punch to the nose and he fell by condemnation John chapter 12 verse 31 thirdly he fell from accusation Revelation 12 verse 7 and 12 right now he's the accuser of the brethren he goes to God and said look at old Denton up there he don't know what he's doing he can't have priests but some of those folks don't like, like him and sometimes he don't even like himself and he does this and he does that and Jesus stepped forth and says devil back on up I shed my blood for him and yeah, he ain't much, but because of grace, he's saved. He says that about you too. Aren't you glad he fell from accusation? There's going to be a day. He's still doing it today. There's going to be a day when he falls from the cosmic world down to earth. Instead of there being star wars, there's going to be war on earth, boots on the ground by the demons. Then there's the fall of, to desperation, Revelation 20, verse 1 and 3. And then finally, thank God, in Revelation 20, 10, there's the fall to elimination. And he's sent to the place that was prepared for him and his angels. Thank God that he's cast out. Now, I'll give you this last thing. We're done. How do you win this thing? Is there any hope? You say, man, you've painted a pretty tough picture we got to go that's a pretty hard hard battle fight i know it is but god told us a way to win look at verse number 11 revelation 12 look at it let's go go to revelation 12 and look at number 11 now look now look y'all listen to me all right keep your bible in your hand keep one eye on me and one eye on, on, on the bible all right and they overcame him. That's the devil. Look up in verse 10. The accuser of the brethren is cast down. Now look. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. And by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. You see, we have a way that God told us to win. He hates all that we do. He hates our church. He hates the people in our church. He hates the kids that come through our church, the babies that you bear. He hates them. He wants to destroy them. And you as parents and we as grandparents and we as soldiers of the cross, we have an opportunity to win. How? By the blood of a lamb. By the blood of a lamb. I don't understand it all. I just have to, I'll just be as honest as I can be. I don't understand it all. 
But I know this, he hates the blood because of this reason. It clears the guilty. Yeah, it clears the guilty. And the blood is the price tag for your redemption and mine. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain. But he washed it white as snow. You see, that's why he hates the blood. The devil has nothing to combat the blood with. And when I go and confess my sin, Jesus said, sorry, buddy, I've shed my blood. He cannot. He has nothing to come back with. The second way we can win, the word of our testimony. Our testimony of Christians has started every church, stirred up every town, convicted every soul. The testimony of his saving grace, life-changing power in the blood. You know what I have to do sometimes? I give my testimony to the devil. Yes, sir, I do. I said, I know you used to have me. I know you still think you got me in some spots sometimes. I know, I know, I know what you used to do, and I know what I used to do, and I know what you had, had, had your hand on my life, but I want you to know one day I walked down the aisle in a little old country church and knelt and repented of my filthy sin with a hangover and turned to Jesus Christ, and he changed my life. Never been the same. If you've ever been saved, the same thing happened to you. May not happen in the same place at the same time, but it happened the same way. And so there's a third way we do it total surrender. There should be nothing that trumps Jesus in your life. Nothing. Nothing. I said nothing. They love not their lives, even to death. Your job don't trump him. Maybe having to go to jail won't trump him. Sickness don't trump him. Whatever happens in your life, your life is not yours. The Bible says Christ is our life. And it's total surrender. Those three things the devil can't beat, but God even gives us one more just for good measure. Look what he says in verse 17. They keep the commandments of God. Now he's talking about the Jews that's been hidden up the remnant, but God expects us to live obediently or we don't even have a testimony. And when we do those three things, when we recognize that we've sinned against the Lord who saved us, that we get on our knees and we call for him to forgive us and cleanse us with his blood. And then every chance we get, we give our testimony to somebody that don't know Christ, somebody who's not saved. And sometimes all by yourself, you just give it to the devil and say, I know what God's done for me. I'm not listening to you today. And then thirdly, you got to give it all up for Jesus Christ. I don't understand how the blood works. I just know this. There's no life without the blood. 
I also know there's the unity of the blood. It was poisoned by Adam in 6,000 years to carry the pain of it. I know there's the vitality of the blood. I know God put something in it that makes us alive. He took a lump of clay and somehow with the blood of God, he makes us living creatures, a new creation in Christ Jesus. I know there's a mortality of the blood. Man sinned, man died, so that necessitated the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the laundry of the blood. He just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. There's the victory of the blood. We become overcomers. No matter who and what the devil throws against us. But I want you to get this one. There's immunity in the blood. <laughs> I'm immune to anything the devil can throw at me. Because I've been inoculated by the blood. And because of that, we're saved. Are you going to heaven? Hey, 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 you going to heaven? Uh, 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 you, I know we're all going to dance around the Christmas tree this afternoon. I know that. That's okay. But you don't need to do it unless you're saved. Because your dance is not going to be a happy one. Your dance is going to be a miserable one. Are you saved up here, down here? Anywhere in this building, out in the halls, walking, sitting out there, uh, maybe in the bathroom where the speakers is, best seat in the house. <laughs> maybe you need to get back in here, give their heart to Christ. Are you saved? I mean, really, I mean, you saved. Have, has there been a time when you'd know that by faith you believed everything that Jesus said he could do for you on Calvary's cross to deal with your sin, and you said, God, I can't do it, but would you help me turn from this sin? I trust you with all of my heart. Would you save me, forgive me, come into my life, and make me a new creature in Christ Jesus? If you've done that, you've been born again. If you haven't done that, you need to get saved. But more than that, there's some Christians today that need to do a little laundry you need to go to the laundromat. If you need some quarters, I'll give you dollars. We need to go to the laundromat today. This church needs some washing. All churches need some washing. I need some washing. You need some washing. Why are we not coming to this altar every Sunday saying, God, I need washing?